I'm usually ready to go, but once again, I kind of got caught up in that music. I don't know. What a great message and song, amen? Tremendous messages and song. And, you know, if I could um, say it this way, too, um, both those that were singing that song, Here Am I, I Will Go, you know what? I, they're both out knocking doors. They're here on Saturdays. They're out reaching out to people, trying to win people to Christ. I don't know about you, but I like to think that the people that are ministering to me are doing what they're telling me. And listen, when you stand up here and you sing a solo like that, you're ministering. Well, we got to be honest and true throughout. I mean, we can't be hypocritical. We stand on a stage and tell you how important it is to go and tell everybody else, but then we don't go, right? That'd be kind of bad, wouldn't it? And so I just, uh, I was so encouraged to hear them sing that song and I just couldn't help but look and smile thinking, wow, there's two people that are singing it, but are also doing it. Boy, that encouraged me. That encourages me. I hope it encourages you as well. And I think you could tell the way they were singing that, it meant something to them. Amen? And that's good stuff. I like it a lot. John chapter 5, beginning in verse 1. John chapter 5, verse 1 today. We're going to read an interesting passage in Scripture. And I'm going to tell you right up front, I do not have all the answers. I'll just tell you that right now. I don't have all the answers. John chapter 5, beginning verse 1, we're going to read through verse 9. And we're going to get through this and you're going to go, oh, I got a question. Nope, you don't. Because I don't have all the answers, all right? I'm supposed to preach the whole counsel of God, so I'm going to do it even though I don't have all the answers. You say, well, that's crazy. You're supposed to be the preacher. You're supposed to know everything. No, God does. Maybe one day he'll reveal this to me or help me understand it. But as I look through the word of God, as we'll talk in a moment, I can't understand. I don't know this whole situation. I don't know how this worked and um, why it worked the way it did. I can't answer that. Notice what happens. After this, John chapter 5, beginning in verse 1 again. I'm getting a little bit of a ring, brother. You could just kind of tweak that a little bit. After this, there was a feast of the Jews in Jerusalem, and, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now, there was at Jerusalem, by the sheep market, a pool, which is called in the Hebrew tongue, Bethesda, having five porches. In these lay a great multitude of impotent folk, of blind, halt, withered, waiting for the moving of the water. For an angel went down at a certain season into the pool and troubled the water. Whosoever then, first after the troubling of the water, stepped in, was made whole of whatsoever disease he had. And a certain man was there which had an infirmity thirty and eight years. When Jesus saw him lie and knew that he had been now a long time in that case, he saith unto him, Wilt thou be made whole? The impotent man answered him, Sir, I have no man when the water is troubled to put me into the pool. But while I am coming, another steppeth down before me. Jesus saith unto him, Rise, take up thy bed and walk. And immediately the man was made whole and took up his bed and walked. And on the same day was the Sabbath. Now again, I'm just going to touch on it real quick, but that whole thing about an angel going down and stirring the water. Again, there's a lot of debate as to whether or not that even happened the way the Bible describes. But may I say that many times the, 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 the discrepancy is in the version you read. 
Because there's verse 4 of this passage isn't in every Bible that's, that's put out. And so you miss the part where he emphatically says, for an angel went down at a certain season into the pool and troubled the water. Now listen, the writer John here, under inspiration of the Holy Spirit, is simply saying, there's an angel that comes down and stirs that water. Now I don't know, someone says, well, it was superstition and they just believed that or they thought that to be the case. I don't know. What I do know is what the Bible says and what I know is what the the writer's saying. And he is under inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And he makes the statement very clearly that he says, listen, these lay a great multitude of impotent folk, blind, halt, weathered, waiting for the moving of the water. For an angel went down. Why did the water move? An angel went down at a certain season into the pool and troubled the water. Whosoever then first, after the troubling of the water, stepped in, was made whole of whatsoever disease he had. Now that's what the Bible says, so guess what? I believe it. Now I don't understand it, and I can't give you, well, where's that at in the world today? Is that pool still around? Uh, Good luck. But it happened. And that's how it happened, over and over and over again, apparently. So now, don't come to me and ask me, well, how'd that happen? I don't know. An angel went down and stirred the water. I know, but how'd the angel... I don't know. I, what the Bible says is what it says. Let's pray and go home. No, I'm teasing. But anyway, <laughs> and that's it, okay? That's, that's all I know. So we can get past that right now, right? Everybody just table that and say, you know what? We don't understand it 100%, but what we do is believe it because the Bible says it. Sometimes by faith, we just have to accept some things. I guess this is one of them. I wish I understood this better. If I could bottle that angel, I'd be richer than rich could be. But it's not working that way, and it doesn't work that way today. We don't know of any pool that has, I mean, we have pools that have some kind of recuperative abilities, then sometimes people say a healing ability. You go in them, you wait in them, you get better, you feel better. When I was overseas, I know even in the Philippines, there are certain hot springs, they call them, and they believe they have some kind of restorative abilities and all of those. And then maybe they do, I'm sure. I mean, I get in a hot tub, sometimes I feel a lot better too. But my point being is there's certain minerals in the water, there's other things, and it may make you feel better, may give you strength, may do this or that. I get it. But it didn't happen like this. I mean, you got in and you were healed completely of whatever it was. It wasn't a process, it just happened. Boy, that's an amazing miracle. It's a miracle, really. But we see the pool here in the passage. Now, the Bethesda pool is described as having five porches. Now, that was somewhat of a puzzling feature for many people early on. Um, For instance, a five-sided pool, that made no sense to them. Scholars dismissed that as being unhistorical, as being unfactual. It couldn't have possibly been. That just wasn't the way it was. And, and so many, many, you know, very intelligent people and, and, and so forth, many scholars said impossible. It just wasn't the case. Once again, the Bible could not be telling the truth. There must be a miscommunication here. But you know what? It's interesting. When they finally found the site and it was excavated, it revealed a rectangular pool. And also had a basin in the middle. And so basically it had one, two, three, four, five porches. So the pool was split, if you will, but in the middle was also a porch. And all the way around were porches. So there were four porches on this pool and one in the middle, which made five. They found the Bible to be true again. Go figure. 
And those five porches, they provided cover and they provided shade for those who came alongside, for those who ultimately found their way and assembled there. And there they were, assembled. We see not only the pool, but we note the people that were assembled. I mean, those who assembled, according to the passage, were described as being impotent, which means weak or feeble, wanting strength or power, unable by nature or or disability to, to perform any act. They were incapable of that. And in this case, he even describes it even more specifically when he says that there were those that were blind. We all know what blindness is, a terrible disease blindness is. Not to be able to see, to literally live in the dark your whole life. Blindness. And there they gathered under those porches. There they gathered being shaded from the sun. There they gathered hoping that at one point, sometime, they would hear the stirring of the water and be able to get into that pool and be healed of their blindness. Then there were those that were halt. The word literally just means to be lame or unable to walk. I don't know why. Maybe they were lame from birth. Maybe they were lame from an accident. I don't know. Maybe they were playing around as children and fell out of a tree. I don't know. But they could not walk. They weren't able to get around on their own. They either had to use crutches or have someone carry them. But the fact was they sat by that pool and there they waited for that stirring of the water so that they could get in and be healed. Not only that, but there were those that he said were withered there. Meaning there was a portion of their body, if you will, an extremity that was incapacitated. It had shrunk. It had dried up, if you will. Unable to be used. So therefore they were disabled. Incapable of working necessarily and providing as they would like to have been able to. And there they waited by side the pool in that, on one of those porches, waiting for the stirring of the water, waiting for the angel to come down. And there they would get in and be healed. Our person in in the particular account that we're reading had an infirmity of 38 years. 38 years. Everybody that is 38 and younger, stand up. You still have an infirmity all these years. You are sick up to this point yet. After 38 years, you are still sick. You, have, you are still in a situation where you can't provide for yourself. You can't protect yourself. You can't take and meet the needs of others. And there you are lying on a porch underneath in the shade, hoping to hear an angel stir the water so that you can get in and get fixed and get healed. And if you're a 38 or younger, you're still in that state. And if you're 38, you're about ready to be delivered. But think about living your whole life with an infirmity. Think about living your whole life halt, maimed, or possibly blind. Think about all these years still dealing with that. You may be seated. 38 years this man laid there, it sounds like. And again, he might have been only 38 years old. But either way, for 38 years now, he had this infirmity. And now we find him laying here in, in, by this pool, hoping, just hoping, hoping that somehow he can get into that water and somehow he can get healed. The problem. Our person, again, has an infirmity for 38 years and has suffered in this state all of those years and has, unfortunately, no power, unfortunately, no ability to get into the water on time. 
Notice verse 7 says, here's the problem. He said to the Lord, sir, I have no man when the water is troubled to put me into the pool. For while I'm coming, another steppeth down before me. Have you ever run a race or have you ever done something where you're in competition and you are confident, you believe you've got it won, you've got it, you're the one that's going to come out on top and all of a sudden at the last second, boom, somebody else reaches that spot. I've been watching the Kentucky Derby and the Belmont and the Preakness for a number of years. My daughter loves horses and so I always watch it and I usually win. But I don't gamble yet. I've thought about it. I'm pretty good at this. No, I'm not really that good at it. I don't know about you, but then that is a tough sport. If you're going to gamble in horse racing, you better know your stuff because I'll tell you what, that's crazy stuff. But I'm going to tell you, I love watching those horses run. And sometimes there's a horse out ahead and you think, man, that horse has got it. It's over with. It's finished. They're going to cross the line before anybody else. And all of a sudden, another one comes from the outside and usually just keeps on going. And you're like, what in the world's going on? And tracks them down and wins by nose. I got to believe that this man right here, he, I mean, has an infirmity for 38 years. I don't know if he was there for a year. I don't know if he's been there five years. I don't know if he's been there for the last 10, 15, or 20. But what I know is that forever how long he was there, he was waiting to hear that angel to stir that water. And when that water got stirred, he wanted to get in so he could get healed. But every time he thought he was the first one in, he got the foot in. And as he went to put the next one in, somebody else got in ahead of him. And he said, man, I missed it again. And he said, my problem, I have no man. You know, David essentially said the same thing when he was on the run from Saul, the, Saul the king. In Psalm 142, verse 4, he said, I looked on my right hand and behold, but there was no man that would know me. Refuge failed me. No man cared for my soul. And someone says, well, didn't he have a relative Didn't he have a mama or daddy? Didn't he have an aunt or an uncle? Didn't he have somebody to help him in the pool? Apparently not. Because when the Lord talked to him and spoke to him, he said, I have no man. No man to lower me in. No man to help me out. No man to get me there in time. But then we see the Prince of Peace. The Lord Jesus Christ shows up on the scene. In Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6, the Bible says, For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. The Bible goes on to say, The government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. Jesus Christ. What a wonderful thing to know him. What a wonderful thing, the Prince of Peace. In verse 6, the Bible goes on to let us know that we have, you know, it says here in verse 6, it says, When Jesus saw him lie and knew that he had been now a long time in that case, he said unto him, Wilt thou be made whole? I mean, in the midst of a multitude of people, mind you. I don't know about you, but if you were uh, one that was blind, if by chance you were lame, if for some reason you were withered, if, if you had an infirmity that kept you from experiencing life as it was intended in your mind and the way other people were living it. I don't know, would you have spent any time at the pool of Bethesda? I think I'd have spent some time at the pool. 
And I'm going to tell you, I believe there were a score of people. The Bible calls it a multitude of people there. They were gathered together hoping to be able to get into that pool and be healed. And the angel came down and stirred it. And yet, Jesus picked him. Jesus sought him. Of all the people that were gathered that day, on all five porches, the Lord went up to him. And the Bible clearly makes, makes it clear that he understood he had been there and had, had been there for some time, that his infirmity had been for 38 years. And he had compassion on him. We note the proposition. Jesus says unto him in verse 8, Rise, take up thy bed and walk. I mean, he, he tells him, Listen, I want to get in the water, but I can't. I have no man to help me. Nobody will put me in it. And Jesus is like, well, tuck up thy bed and walk. <laughs> and I don't think he had to yell it either. I think he just as said he spoke it. Take up thy bed and walk. And man, I need to tell you, he took up his bed and walked. Now again, I don't know. Some people said that a bed in those days is a mat. And I've looked a little bit into that somewhat. And I get it. I'm sure it wasn't apostropedic. I'm sure he didn't have to haul it up on his back like a big piece of drywall and walk down the street. I'm sure that it was something that could be gathered together. And he grabbed that old thing that he would lay on and he'd spend the day on and he ripped it all up and he gathered it all up and rolled it up possibly and he picked it up and he got on his feet and he said, praise God, praise God, praise God, I can walk. Woo! When's the last time you thank God you can walk? I guarantee you, if at some point you can't, you'll wish you could. Well, we've got to be grateful for what we can do now, don't we? But he was fired up, man. I mean, he took up his bed and he got to walking. Because that was really the payoff. He obeyed the Lord. He did what he was told. I mean, Jesus showed up and had compassion on him. And immediately the man was made whole, the Bible says. Immediately he was made whole. It wasn't a process. It didn't take place over time. It wasn't like, let's go to the rehab, my friend, and get it taken care of. No, you are healed. You are healed. Rise up and walk. <laughs> That's the way I like it. So we noted the pool, the people, the prince of peace, the proposition, the payoff. But today I want to talk just a little bit about the principle. What can we learn from this for you and I? What can you and I learn? Because in the end, it, a, an account like this is very good, and we get encouraged maybe by reading it, but how does that apply to us? I mean, what does that mean to you and I? Well, let's have a word of prayer, and we'll just consider the principle in just these last few moments. Father, we come to you. We thank you again for this time together. We ask, Lord, that you just bless us and help us, and Lord, may our hearts be encouraged as we consider this passage and, and, and the principle and principles that it can teach us. Well, thank you now in Christ's name. Amen. A number of principles we could learn, I'm sure, but I want to give you just three thoughts, okay, very, very quickly today. First of all, I want to note what we find. What we find there at that pool is humanity. What we find is humanity. See, all of humanity is in the same boat. 
We're all flawed with the infirmity of sin. Every last one of us is like that, those crippled men and women. It's just like those that have the infirmity. We too find ourselves in a position where we are flawed. And again, I'm not, don't get all over me about not being, you know, politically correct and all of that. I'm not, I'm not talking specifically that people with infirmities are below us. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about relating it to the idea of sin. We are all, in a sense, not complete. We are not as we ought to be in that sense, not capable of utilizing all the pieces and parts that God has placed within us. We are all flawed beings in this life. And in Jeremiah 17, 9, he makes it perfectly clear that the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked who can know it. Our hearts are flawed from the very beginning. We may not have a physical impairment, but we have a spiritual impairment. We are sinners at the very root, at the very base of our foundation, and every aspect of our life is rooted in sin, and we are going to continue on that route and that road. We are flawed beings, and we find ourselves at that pool, if you will. We find ourselves somehow trying, somehow, to deal with that. In Isaiah, in, in, excuse me, Psalm chapter 51, verse 5, the psalmist says, Behold, I was shapen in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. And again, David is not somehow putting his mother down. He's not saying that she was an immoral woman. He's simply saying that in sin, I was conceived. Man, daddy and her got together and what was produced was a sinner. And I know when you look at that little baby and they first are born and you, you start to wrap them up and you cuddle them up and they get cleaned up and, and over, as the days move on, you go, wow, he or she is so cute. They're so cuddly. They're so wonderful. Look at them. They're the perfect little kid, perfect little kid, perfect little baby. Uh-uh, anything from perfect. And again, anybody that's ever had a baby knows they're anything but Perfect. Now, they may look cute and they may be cuddly at times, but when they get to crying and screaming and throwing a little fit, let me tell you something, you can see the humanity coming out of them. And there's other times things come out of them that make you clear of that too. I mean, it's an amazing thing how a little child that is the love of your life, the joy of the world, and is in your arms can become the thing that you just can't wait to get away from. I'm always amazed. About, I can't believe that she would be. A, uh, uh, I can't believe she said that about her kid. Are you kidding? I mean, I'm not saying that we don't love our kids, but there are times they get on our nerve. They're kids. And guess what they are? They're sinners. And you and I, all humanity, are born into sin. It doesn't mean a child would ever go to hell. God would never send a child to hell. Don't misunderstand me in any way there. Man, I mean, God understands that they have yet to reach a point of accountability. They don't understand necessarily the ramification of sin. They don't get what it means to be uh, uh, um, uh, responsible to God for their sin yet. But the fact is there'll come a day when they will be. But in the meantime, they're children, but they're still sinners at the root. Nobody has to teach a kid to do wrong. And you know what? We find humanity gathered around that pool. And as many infirmities as we see in their physicalness, we have those spiritual infirmities in our hearts and in our souls today. We're born with an infirmity, a sinfulness, a spiritual infirmity. What we find? Humanity. Not only that, but what we face. Helplessness. 
helplessness. Hold on, let me say this though, let me add this to it. Helplessness with a splinter of hope. What we, find, what we face, all humanity, is hopelessness. However, we have this little splinter of hope. This little gleam of hope. Just like those that were there along the, the, the sides of the pool. There they lay waiting to see the water stirred. Hoping that they could get in first before someone else got in. That's how we are in the, the life that we live. We are simply human beings and all humanity is flawed and all of us have sin in our heart and yet we live in a state of hopelessness or helplessness, excuse me, with just a splinter of hope that just maybe it'll get better, it'll be all right if I can just get a new job, if I just get a new car, if I just get a wife or a husband, if I just get this or that, it'll be okay. We've always got that glimmer of hope in the midst of our helplessness. We can't do anything about our sin, but we can try to cover it up a little bit better. We can try to dress it up a little bit better. Look in Ecclesiastes chapter 2. You say, life, I mean, come on now, life is good. Yeah, when you're young, it seems so wonderful, it seems. Get a little older and all of a sudden you're faced with certain situations and circumstances that aren't as comfortable. Ecclesiastes 2, let's look at Solomon's commentary on life. At least life in and of itself. Just life itself. Notice what he says in Ecclesiastes chapter 2. We're going to begin in verse 1. Psalms, Proverbs, then you'll find Ecclesiastes. Chapter 2. Notice he says, I said in mine heart, go to now, I will prove thee with myrrh. Solomon, of course, was the son of David, ultimately the king of Israel. Solomon was the man who ultimately, who had asked for wisdom and God gave him wisdom and said, you, will be the, you are the wisest man. And he had tremendous wisdom at some point. And when he wrote this book, we've, we're going to see his particular viewpoint on life. Proverbs is a great book to read. It gives us tremendous nuggets of wisdom. The Ecclesiastes, as we're going to see, is written in a time when he understood a little bit about what life was without God. Or without him. Notice what it says here. I said in mine heart, go to now, I will prove thee with myrrh, therefore enjoy pleasure. And behold, this also is vanity. I said, of laughter, it is mad, and of myrrh, what doeth it? I sought in mine heart to give myself into wine, yet acquainting my heart with wisdom, and to lay hold on folly, till I might see what was that good for the sons of men, which they should do under the heaven all the days of their life. I made me great works. I builded me houses. I planted me vineyards. I made me gardens and orchards, and I planted trees in them of all kinds of fruits. I made me pools of water to water wherewith the wood that bringeth forth trees. I got me servants and maidens and had servants born in my house that also I had great possessions of great and small cattle above all that were in Jerusalem before me. I gathered me also silver and gold and the particular treasure of kings and of the provinces. I got me men singers and women singers and the delight of the sons of men as musical instruments and, uh, that, uh, and that of all sorts. 
So I was great and increased more than all that were before me in Jerusalem. Also my wisdom remained with me, and whatsoever mine eyes desired, I kept not from them. I withheld not my heart from any joy, for my heart rejoiced in all my labor, and this was my portion of all my labor. Then I looked on all of the works that my hands had wrought, and on the labor that I had labored to do, and behold, all was vanity and vexation of spirit. And there was no profit under the sun. See, when the writer here of Ecclesiastes, Solomon is writing, he's looking at life and he's looking at it simply by just what he can accomplish in his own what he can do on his own. And he's saying, listen, I'm doing the best I can. I'm going, I can seek after this and I seek after that and I have everything that the world says is success. But in the end, when it's all said and done, in and of themselves, they mean absolutely nothing. They're empty, they're vain, they're nothingness. Because in the end, in the chapters ahead, in chapter 13, he goes on, chapter 12, he goes on to say, let us hear the conclusion of the whole matter. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. He said, listen, you're going to give an account to God. You've got to realize that all of this is just smoke and mirrors. It's not really everything you think it is. It's not what life is really about. There's more than now. There's tomorrow and there's eternity awaiting. We seek it through people. We seek it through things. We seek it through accomplishments. We try to find something that will give us hope, that will help us through, that somehow will help us to deal with our inconsistencies and our incompatibilities and our, the fact that we're, we're, we're not right with a holy God. That splinter of hope is no hope at all. It's no hope at all. What we find there is humanity. What we face is helplessness with a splinter of hope. But what we fancy or what we really desire is help. Is help. Turn to Ephesians chapter 2, would you please? Verse 1. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1. Ephesians chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. And you hath he quickened, who were dead in trespasses and sins. Wherein in time past ye walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that now worketh in the children of disobedience. Among all also, we all had our conversation in time past in the lust. Hey, by the way, verse 3, notice, among whom also we all had our conversation in times past in the lust of the flesh. By the way, ain't nobody any better than the next around here. We've all been the same places. In that sense. Oh, I know we've maybe taken a few different roads, but it's all still the same road leading to the same place. And notice he goes on to say, he says in verse 4, he goes on to verse 3, Among whom also we all had our conversation in time past in the lust of the flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind. We were by nature the children of wrath, even as others. 
But God, who is rich in mercy, for his great love wherewith he loved us, even when we were dead in sins, hath quickened us together with him. By grace ye are saved, and hath raised us up together, and made us sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. That in the ages to come, watch this now, that in the ages to come, he might shew the exceeding riches of his grace in his kindness toward us through Christ Jesus. You say, why did God save us? For his glory. Notice that he might show the exceeding riches of his grace. Hey, it isn't just, I know he loves us, don't misunderstand me. But in the end, guess what? The world, humanity, that did not choose to receive and accept him, that did not allow his grace to be sufficient in their life, they're going to gaze upon him accepting you and accepting me, and they're going to say, why would you accept them? Why would you let them into heaven and not me? I'm just as good as them. I'm no worse than them. And they'll go, it's all because of his grace. His grace, he's so full of grace. To give them what I don't have now. And they don't have it because they choose to reject him. And they're going to look at God and they're going to be amazed at his grace. They're going to be amazed at it. They're going to look and say, it's exceeding riches. Look at the riches of his grace. Look at what I've missed out on. Look at what I could have had. And look how kind he is to those who received his grace. I could have had that kindness. I messed up. I messed up. And unfortunately in hell, the Bible tells us this is what will really happen. Is that they'll shake their fist at God still and call him unjust and unrighteous and demand that he come and take them out even though they rejected him in this life. You will only grow all the more hateful toward God in hell. That's what the Bible teaches us in the book of Revelation. It's a sad place to be, but let me tell you something. He says to you and I, I'm talking about those that know Christ as Savior and Lord. He says, listen, we were dead, but we've been quickened. We've been made alive. For by grace are you saved through faith and not of yourselves. It's a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. I mean, here we are now. We're just like that, that our man today that's over there in the pool, and we're sitting on the por- the, 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 underneath the porches, and we're, we're being shaded from the sun, and here we lay on our mat, and we're just waiting for the water to be stirred, waiting for the angel to come down. I know I've got an infirmity. I know I need to be healed. I know I need to be touched. I know I need something to change in my life. And all of a sudden, the stirring comes, and we can't get there in time. I need some help. Does nobody care for me? Is there no man to care for me? I can't take a heart that's broken. Make it over again. But I know a man who can. I can't take a soul that's sin sick and wash it white as snow. But I know a man who can. 
Some call him Savior, the Redeemer of all men. I call him Jesus, for he's my dearest friend. If you think that no one loves you and your life is out of hand, well, I know a man who can. I'm going to tell you something. I know a man who can. I know a man who cares today, and he will take you, and he'll place you in the water of his love, and he'll save your soul, and you'll be free from that infirmity. And you too can walk on those streets of gold one day. And you too can bask in the presence of a holy God. And you too can be forgiven, my friend. I have no man, he said. But thank God, there was Jesus. He was more than just a man. He was God-man. And when the Bible says there in Ephesians chapter 2, You hath he quickened who were dead in trespasses and sins. That day I came upon, the Lord came upon me. The day he sought me out. He said, take up thy bed and walk. And the infirmity was gone. And I was a new creature in Christ. He says in John 1, 12 and 13, 112 verses 12, excuse me, chapter 1, verse 12 through 13. But as many as received him, to them gave he power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe on his name, which were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. See, our salvation is not based upon human descent. It's not about the blood you have coursing through your veins if it is tainted by sin. It's not by human desire. You don't just will salvation. You don't just decide you're going to be saved. And it is not of human design. You don't just simply say, okay, I'm saved. It don't work that way. You don't come up with your own plan. You don't come up with your own way. You don't have that. Jesus is the way. He is the truth. He is the life. And I'm telling you, friend, you may be seated today right there by that pool, and you may know you've got to get in because there's something broken inside. My friend Jesus is here today, and he's going to come to you if you'll let him, and he'll say, rise and walk. I want you to know you can be saved today. You can have your sin washed away and you can become a new creature in Christ Jesus. You no longer have to bear that infirmity any longer. Father, we come to you. We come to you because, Lord, you're the only one we can come to that can truly